Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. For these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore... Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. God is faithful. God is faithful. We have been reading, overhearing, intercepting Paul's ancient letter to Christians in Corinth. And you might remember from earlier on in the letter, we, we, took, uh, we took the wisdom of one commentator who said, Paul had a great pastoral task. As a missionary, he planted this church, but as a pastor from a distance, uh, he had the task of re-socializing these Corinthians towards a new way of life, a new way of thinking, a new worldview, re-socializing them, helping to think differently about who they were and how to interpret what the world was saying to them and what they were doing in relationship to the culture around them. It's tempting to make your Christianity fit in with your former lifestyle or with the lifestyle of the people around you. But you discover as you begin to follow Jesus and as you continue to follow Jesus that it's impossible to do. You can't make Christianity fit in with the world. Paul knew that, but it seems that the Corinthians had not yet discovered it, and that's why he's writing this letter to them. Our Christianity, the Christianity that the Bible presents, it, it forces you to reinterpret the world in which you live. It, it leads you, it encourages you, there's no other way, to reorder your life, to reorder your identity, your thinking, your priorities, your very behavior. And this wasn't happening in the Corinthian church. Noticeably, evident in their casual attitude towards idolatry. 
And you might remember in chapters 8 and now in chapter 10, 8, 9, and 10, Paul is urging them to make a clean break from idolatry or anything in their lives that's associated with the idolatry of the culture. And so in the heart of this three-chapter argument, uh, Paul says, uh, just past this reading, in chapter 10, verse 14, therefore, my beloved free from idolatry. That's the heart of what Paul is saying in these three chapters. Now, if you've been walking with me through 1 Corinthians so far, you may, you may be getting tired of hearing Paul say things like, don't eat this, don't go there, don't sleep with that person again and again and again. Or maybe it's, it's a hard letter to read. Um, you may be tired yourself of resisting temptations, uh, like the temptations that were presented to the Corinthians. Uh, You may be tired of losing the battle in your own life against strong temptations. But in the middle of all of this tough stuff, all of these stern warnings that Paul offers is this very encouraging thought in the heart of it all. God is faithful. If you are struggling to make a clean break from the destructive thoughts and habits of your past, I want to encourage you today. God's faithfulness to deliver you is greater than sin's persistence to destroy you. God, in his grace, offers you all that you need to resist, and he is greater than the sin that is entangling you. And we see this in the example of our spiritual ancestors, the Corinthians. And we're going to see it in the example of our spiritual ancestors, the wandering Israelites. To them and to you and to us, we're going to see that God is faithful. Now, the history of redemption taught the Corinthians that God was faithful. Paul, Paul is, is, is talking to them in the climate of a Greek culture and a Roman culture, incessant to draw them back into the prevailing cultural norms they were used to and accustomed to before they became Christians. Just as the ancient Canaanites uh, were incessantly drawing the ancient, the ancient Israelites into the cultural norms of the day, The Greco-Roman culture was doing the same for the Corinthians. And and Paul highlights this. He gives a brief history lesson. And most of the Corinthian believers were not Jewish. uh, So they may have not known all of this. Paul brings out Old Testament Testament history to give them a simple lesson. And what does he tell them? I'm just going to summarize the first several verses in this way. He He says, God was with the Israelites when they were in the wilderness for 40 years between slavery and having their own place to live. Uh, God was with them. They were followed by the glory cloud of God's presence. They passed through the Red Sea unharmed. They ate manna from God. They drank water from the rock. I encourage you, if you haven't done this before, read through the ancient history of the Israelites and their wilderness wanderings, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
Deuteronomy. If you start to fall asleep and you want the shorter version, read Exodus and then read Numbers. At least start that way. Exodus and Numbers, all right, for those who are faint of heart. But Paul's showing, that, Paul's showing the Corinthians, look, when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, God's faithful, sustaining presence delivered them, guided them, protected them. But he goes on to say, many of them, many of them were ungrateful. Many of them rebelled and they died in the wilderness after 40 years. And Paul's chief example of their ingratitude and their rebellion, uh, which led to their death in the wilderness, was, was the golden calf and the subsequent partying, partying that took place after uh, they created this golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain for a while. And that's Paul's chief example taken from Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. He quotes, he says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Um, two things are associated with pagan worship in ancient times, whether it was Canaan or whether it was Greece or Rome. Uh, regardless, there are two things associated with pagan idol worship, idol food, and we looked at that last week, and prostitution. Those are the two big things in an ancient temple, prostitutes and idol food. And so Paul's talking about sexual depravity and eating habits as related to the local pagan religious traditions. Now, it's interesting that Paul quotes the golden calf episode, people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This happened after they worshiped the golden calf. When it says they rose up to play, he doesn't mean scrabble. All Jewish and Christian commentators throughout over the last 2,000 years have all said that word play, it refers to fornication. It, re, it, re, it, it refers to sexual depravity. So the idea there is pagan worship included a certain type of eating and a certain type of sexuality. And notice it's exactly the issue that the Corinthians are dealing with in the, this, what Paul's addressing in the entire letter. And this is Paul's point. Just as Israel succumbed to its surrounding culture, so are you. But Paul's evidence of God's faithfulness comes out now to the ancient Corinthians. If you skip ahead to verse 11, and he says this in two different places, these words, but he says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for us, for our instruction. Would you agree with this? Most of my, unfortunately, most of my valuable lessons in life have come by watching other people make big mistakes. I have learned so much by negative example. You know what I'm saying? Learning what not to do by watching others do it, you gain wisdom that way. And that's what Paul is saying. The Holy Spirit has provided these ancient scriptures for us so that we can learn by negative example of what not to do and how not to respond to God's good generosity. And so he goes on to say to them in verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Their arrogance about their liberty as Christians to do whatever they wanted as forgiven, reconciled people. 
their ignorance was dangerous. I'm sorry, their arrogance was dangerous. Now, Paul does this sharp turn here. He's got all these difficult, hard things to say, and he does a sharp turn, and he offers them this gem of biblical hope against temptation. He says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But when the tempta- with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And here you have both a warning and an encouragement. The warning is this. You're as susceptible to sin and discipline and death as the wandering Israelites were. And here's the encouragement. You are as blessed and guided and guarded by God's grace to resist temptation and live. That was Paul's history lesson to the Corinthians. God was faithful to his people. Now, as the Old Testament scriptures were preserved for the early church, all of scripture has been preserved for us, friends. We have it all. We have a lot of negative examples to learn from in both Old and New Testaments. And we have more than that. The history of redemption teaches us that God remains faithful. Look, our society is as incessant as the ancient Greeks and Romans, as the ancient Canaanites, as incessant to draw us back into prevailing cultural norms. We take it for granted uh, that we live in a society that was largely built upon Judeo-Christian frameworks. But historically speaking, that is a rare thing. Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Body, makes a very important point. From the beginning, Christians have not defended traditional values. They have stood for truth against prevailing cultural norms. And we have returned to that dynamic in our society. We're not trying to defend, biblically speaking, traditional values. We are trying to stand for truth against prevailing cultural norms. If you are a Christian, it's important for us to understand this as a spiritual family. We have to stand together for truth against the cultural norms of our society that tell us to reject God's goodness and his truth. However, you as an individual Christian must stand for truth in yourself against prevailing cultural norms. And we stand against sin's alluring power by availing ourselves of all the means that God provides for us. The means of God's faithfulness. You know, the Westminster divines in the 1600s when they wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, they talked about God's means of grace. And they described primarily, there are more than this, but there are primarily three, the word of God, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer. Those are the means by which God communicates his grace to us, his word, these sacraments and prayer. Avail yourselves of these means of grace. But it's more than that. Let's look at a practical example right here in verse 13. We'll look at verse 13 again, just part of it. 
God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. Now you see a couple of things there. Let me point something out. It is not a promise of no temptation. This is not a promise that God is not gonna let you be tempted. It's rather a promise of not testing you and tempting you in an inappropriate manner. Look at those words. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will not let you be tempted beyond your current capacity to resist it. Think of it this way. Uh, Becky can bake a plate of delicious cookies and leave them on the kitchen counter and say to me, don't touch those until after dinner. And as a grown man in my middle age years, I generally can obey that. I usually have the strength to resist that. I'm at a point in my life that I can say, oh, okay, I'll enjoy those cookies later after I've eaten my meal, no problem. But Becky cannot take that approach with our two-year-old. You can't ask a two-year-old to stare at a plate of cookies and not touch them. So the, the, the mode of temptation that God will allow me to endure is not the mode of temptation that God will allow somebody who is more spiritually mature than I to endure or sp less spiritually mature than I. And that's what Paul is saying here. Likewise, God as a loving father knows your maturity and limits your exposure to what might tempt you. And by the way, that's exactly Paul's point in chapter eight when he says, hey, if you are spiritually strong, don't put stumbling blocks in the way of those who are spiritually weak. What Paul is saying is don't, it, you may be able to handle it, don't expose people to a level of temptation they cannot, at this point in their lives, resist. God doesn't do that. That's not what a loving father does. Once again, look at verse 13. This is not a promise to remove temptations either, but rather to help you successfully endure them. Look at the words. He'll provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And this brings me to mention Timothy Geiger, who works for Harvest USA. He's a gifted communicator, teacher, and preacher. And uh, he, uh, what he talks about uh, is, um, I think, so important. At our denomination's last general assembly, they have seminars and classes you can go to. And I tried to get in to Timothy Geiger's seminar, and it was standing room only. So many people wanted to hear what he was talking about, and I highly recommend him. Timothy Geiger, and I'm, I'm using his own description, not my own. Uh, Timothy Geiger recounts his, his former struggle uh, to come out of a homosexual lifestyle. And this is something interesting that he said about resisting temptation in that process. He wrote, God really didn't change my circumstances which is what I had been demanding all along. But he gave me his peace and contentment in the midst of my circumstances. And I think that is so important regardless of what we struggle with. At the heart of sin is a longing for satisfaction that only God himself can fill. So the remedy to resist temptation is wanting God more than the thing that you desire. 
And sometimes that may mean, according to Timothy Geiger, and I believe according to Paul in verse 13, that God will not remove all threats and temptations from you because then you would not want him. He knows your limits. He knows your capacities. And he provides you a way to endure temptation and desire him more. So pursue all of God's means of faithfulness in giving you himself. That's the foundation where we build upon. And what has he given you? Well, just for starters, he's, he's given you his written word that guides you to know him and to embrace his wisdom. He's given you his son, the word become human flesh who died for you as a Christian, who paid your sins penalties. He's given you his indwelling Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ to comfort you, to be with you forever until Christ returns. The spirit of truth changing you from the inside out to love God's word, to receive God's son as your savior, to desire God's truth, to, in, to desire God himself more than anything else. You know, when we recite the Apostles' Creed every month before we take communion, in that creed, we recite these words, I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. And I bring that up to say that perhaps we have forgotten or perhaps you're overlooking in your struggle a means of God's faithfulness, his people. Notice we say, right after I believe in the communion of saints, we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. There's this connection between our community and fellowship and our ability to overcome sin. It's true. The apostle John would say in his first letter, but if we walk in the light as God is in the light, this is an interesting turn. We have fellowship with him, well, yes, but what does he say? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And John went on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Paul would say a very similar thing in a different letter to the, to the Galatians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But Paul went on to say, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There is a connection between resisting sin and availing ourselves of Christian relationships. God has given you his word. God has given you his son. God has given you his spirit. God has given you his people. You have every opportunity to escape temptation and to endure it. Dying alone in the wilderness remains a real threat. Uh, Paul is hanging this over the Corinthians' head saying, hey, you know, we get all the warm fuzzies when we hear the words, no temptation is seizing you. That's not common to everybody else. There's a side to that that bites. Hey, 
if the ancient Israelites fell, you will too. If the Corinthians fell, so might we. The loneliness of fear and the loneliness of pride intensify our weakness to resist in the wilderness. The loneliness of fear and the loneliness of pride. I'll talk about them very briefly. Regarding feel, uh, feel, it's, I'm tired. Uh, regarding fear, the psychiatrist Kurt, Comps, uh, Kurt Thompson uh, connects fear to our shame. And he writes in his book, The Soul of Shame, that, that shame causes us, or the fear of shame causes us to hide because we're afraid of being exposed. We're afraid of being found out. And so we disconnect ourselves from people. We disconnect ourselves from relationships. And even inwardly, in our minds, our minds, our thinking, our ability to, to think clearly is disconnected. Shame causes us to hide in fear of exposure. So we cut ourselves off from the community of faith that God has provided to us to help us. But Thompson goes on to say, this is the remedy, and it's counterintuitive. Um, so in fear, and in the fear of shame, we run from each other and hide our sin from each other. But Thompson says, actually, exposure is the very thing that shame requires for healing. It is the movement toward another person, toward connection with someone who is safe, that we come to know life and freedom from this prison. When we make a regular practice of sharing our lives with each other, shame hates this. It was the Apostle James in James chapter 5 who said this very thing, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Connection is what works against the fear of shame that isolates us from each other and from the help that we need. Regarding pride, and I'll be a bit more brief about pride, uh, pride was really more so the Corinthians' problem. Uh, they didn't seem too afraid of being judged. They seemed a bit too free and not worrying about judgment. Eating and drinking in the prevailing cultural norms. Uh, so you got to ask yourself, am I drinking in and eating up the prevailing cultural norms whether it's sexuality or conflict or politics uh, or the way you work or the way you spend your free time or your money or your leisure? Am I eating in and drinking in the prevailing cultural norms? Because what that tends to do, as it did for the Corinthians, is gives you a sense of intelligence and sophistication and creativity. You begin to fit in. You, you make a way for your faith to match the prevailing cultural norms, and you begin to think rather pridefully, I'm kind of likable around here. I'm finding a way to be an intelligent, sophisticated God-fearer in our society. People like me. I'm in. And what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, you're in trouble. It was the ancient teacher in Proverbs 28 who said, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. See, pride is not necessarily like fear. Fear runs and hides and covers up, but pride deludes us into thinking that we don't have a problem at all. 
And then, Paul says, we fall. Whether it's pride or fear, whatever you battle with, be careful that you don't die in the wilderness. But God is faithful. Amen? He who was also tempted in the wilderness remained faithful for us, for his heavenly Father. You know, it's no coincidence that Jesus Christ, after his public ministry launch and his open baptism, was tempted by Satan in the wilderness for not 40 years, 40 days. It's no coincidence. You see, God was showing the Israelites that Jesus of Nazareth did what they couldn't do, defeat sin, beat the devil with the very word of God, which was food to him. And God was showing all of humanity, you and me, that Christ did what Adam chose not to do and so enslaved the rest of us. Desire God more than knowledge. Desire God more than satisfaction. Desire God more than being liked and being admitted and being respected. Desiring God more. And so the author of Hebrews tells us, and we read this earlier, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted. By the way, the Greek word for tempt and test, same thing. When you read in the New Testament, test or tempt, it's usually the very same word. We have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Maybe what you're missing in your fight to resist temptation is knowing where to run to, knowing where to escape. Run to Jesus. That's where we have to start. Do you desire him? Run to Jesus who know, literally knows, experientially knows your temptations. Was tempted in every way as we are, but was without sin. Run to Jesus who has the power to kill sin in you. And surround yourself with his people. His people who may lovingly and truthfully guide you. His faithfulness to deliver you is greater, my friends, than sin's persistence to trip you up and destroy you. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Pursue all the means of God's faithfulness, his grace to help you resist sin in your body, but also in your mind, holistically. And let the kindness of Jesus Christ draw you into his light into the light of truth and transformation. God is not promising you to never be tempted ever again. God is not promising that at all. He loves you too much to not make you struggle. Your struggle for him is about you desiring him more than the thing you are tempted to indulge in, the, the way of thinking that you are tempted to revert to. Do you desire him 
We need to help each other. We need to help each other. Don't remain in fear of your shame of being found out and cutting yourself off from the means and the people that God has provided by his grace to help you or you will die in the wilderness. Do not in your pride think that because you are a Christian, you are immune to God's discipline or you will die in the wilderness. But remember Jesus, our Lord, who was tested and tempted in the wilderness, who died on a Roman cross so that your failures would not bring you into God's condemnation. We have a high priest who has struggled with our temptations. He was fully human. He was fully God and fully human. It meant in his humanity, he was tested to reject his heavenly father which is why Satan tempted him with those particular temptations. Read all the Gospels, chapter four of at least half of the Gospels. Receive the means by which the Lord Jesus gives himself to you and says, if you're gonna resist and if you're gonna overcome, begin to ask me that the desires of your heart will be for me, my love, my comfort, my promise to be with you in temptation. Let's pray. Our Father, we are weak, but you are mighty. As the hymn says, guide us with thy powerful hand. We thank you for our Lord Jesus who resisted, though he was tempted in every way, resisted and won our salvation. Now, Father, help us to draw close to Jesus. We we. We recognize now that, that you're not just going to remove temptation from us. You, you want us to struggle. You want us to work out this salvation that Jesus has accomplished. You want us to work out the ramifications of it in our lives every day with fear, with trembling. We ask that you would kill sin in us, but we ask you for the power against our shame, against our pride, that we would kill the sin in us. We no longer make excuses. We're culpable. Thank you for saving us and redeeming us. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to your, your cross we cling. Thank you for loving us sinners. We come in full confidence to your throne of grace, asking you to help us in our time of need. May we remember and know your word. May we take hope in communion when we take it and celebrate it together. May we take hope when we see people baptized, where we see that sign of your promise to always fulfill your promises. When we see that sign placed on another human being, help us to remember your grace. May we keep in step with your Holy Spirit in us. Father, thank you for giving us yourself we avail ourselves of every means of your grace that you have provided. We have no more excuses. We rest upon the Lord Jesus fully. We enjoy him and desire him more than anything else. Amen.